And three, two, one. Hello, folks, and welcome back to another edition of A Humanistic Perspective. And this week, we've got another amazing episode for you. I have the privilege of sitting down with Jerry Fu. Jerry Fu is a pharmacist and a conflict resolution coach and an all-around well-cultured man. I look forward to this conversation, and I'm happy to have on Jerry. Thank you, Jerry, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Chad. Yeah, no problem. So I like to start the show by going back to your adolescent years. I would love to get into the headspace and really understand um, how you were raised, maybe what was life like with your parents? What was the household atmosphere? What was your school life like? Um, and let's go from there. Uh, wow, unlocking uh, <laughs> some <laughs> interesting stories for sure. Yeah, um, adolescent years, it was a mix of, of um, you know, old school Asian tough love and shaming on top of, you know, trying to fit in and trying to figure out what made me happy and, you know, just wanting to play video games when everything else just, you know, got too hard or complicated. <laughs> and whereabouts where did you grow up? So originally um, I'm from Wisconsin, but I moved to Tennessee when I started sixth grade. So, um, yeah, it was definitely an adjustment in culture for sure. Um, you know, I knew like maybe six other Asian people, <laughs> you know, they were friends wow. of mine and then, you know, had to, had to do piano and violin lessons and then had to do SAT prep books on Saturday mornings when other kids were watching cartoons. And then, No kidding. Um, you were really put through like a rigorous, like educational space. Yeah. I was the firstborn of, of immigrant parents. And so, you know, they really, uh, you know, pulled up punches when it came to making sure I was going to be, you know, on paper, uh, successful by their standards. Absolutely. Now, when you're in your headspace as a kid, how are you feeling with this type of parental leadership style? How did, how, how were you handling it? How were you coping with it? And, and what do you reflect on that now as an adult? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give a quick example to, to show you the kind of things that we deal with. Um, at one point when my dad was teaching, trying to teach me math, uh, I was struggling to grasp the concept. And so for whatever reason, he felt he needed to insult me in order to like motivate me to work harder, because I guess somehow if I worked harder, then he wouldn't have to insult me as much. And the specific insult that he actually went to the effort of, of doing was to teach me two words in Japanese. And those two words are head, which is adama, mm -hmm. and concrete, which is konkuri. And he would tell me, adama konkuri. And so concrete, I thought head. to myself... Yeah, like he taught me another language just to tell me that I'm stupid. Like this, oh, is, no. this, this, this is what I'm dealing with, right? And um, yeah, it was, you know, that was the way he was brought up. And I guess it worked for him. And even if he thought of something better, you know, in those crucial moments, you're going to lean back on muscle memory, right? And you're going to say, well, you know, this isn't the healthiest method to maybe help him forward, but I'd rather do something than not. And so, you know, sure. um, I mean, it was hard, like, you know, with mm. just this kid who struggled to feel like he belonged, just insecurity was a, you know, silent stigma for me for the longest time. I just didn't want to admit to people that I was insecure about things because I just, I was afraid if they found out, they would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're insecure. So, which, and ironically enough, when you're more open about it, you realize how many people actually deal with it. And then all of a sudden you know, you're like, oh, this is normal. This is, you know, it's not ideal, but at least I know I'm not alone with this. Um, 100%. And so, yeah, just in that headspace, you know, I can, 
I'm at a point now where I can reflect and just give my parents grace and say, hey, you know what? They're just doing the best they could um, um, to really just make sure that I was in a space where I became a responsible adult and, you know, had these things, uh, had, you know, habits and, and um, other routines in place to be sure that I was a contributor to society and I'll be a responsible person. Uh, but in the moment, it was definitely hard when, you know, my dad would say, hey, you know, you need to go through these SAT prep books one more time. And it was just kind of like, why? <laughs> like, I don't, um, to do a quick tangent, I talked to another uh, Chinese uh, friend of mine who had a similar story where he just said, you know, I just got so sick of, you know, him them putting prep books on me that I just memorized the answers whenever they told me to, to go through these books. And then I would just play games on my, on my calculator the rest of the time. And it was just kind of like, this Holy is cow. like, this is, this is how we are a little too smart for our own good. Right. We're just kind of like, okay, how's, what's the, what's the easiest way to get them off our backs? It's like, okay, well, you know, this, the system where the loopholes done, everybody's happy. Right. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. What a brilliant dynamic. So I know for me too, I grew up in a, in a household with tons of adversity too. Um, I, I have mm-hmm. a parent, I'm a, I'm a kid of a first generation immigrant myself. Um, and yeah. I, I do notice a lot of these uh, cultural differences in the concepts of parenting um, mm-hmm. would affect me to the point where I, I would go out and I would try and be as involved in the school as possible because that started to feel mm-hmm. more like a central place of home where I could just be me and escape. Mm-hmm. Did you have any similar situation to that for you? What were maybe some of your hobbies or some of your coping mechanisms or things that really helped you get through these points of adversity? Yeah, it's, uh, I remember when someone asked me about 10 years ago, he goes, hey, are you an approval addict? And that pretty much, you saw, I just saw my entire life flash before <laughs> my eyes, right? It was just, um, I think in some ways, the best thing that came out of all this was when I, you know, not to play too many stereotypes, but I did what I did. Um, you know, I was on a math team in high school and um you know sophomore year i started to get really good at it and i was winning trophies and you know it felt great because it was just like oh you know now my parents are happy and people are expecting my you know intelligence level things like that and you know it there was still part of me that wondered how much would be enough and i think that was really Mm -hmm. the danger the silent like danger point that i wasn't addressing because you know you you get a taste of that. Right. And then you're just like, Oh, I want more of it. And right. You know, I want to build out my resume. I want people to admire me, uh, you know, from even a spiritual standpoint, when I became a Christian and then uh, people would say, wow. And I realized if I memorize just large blocks of scripture or people think I'm like profound or insightful, that's okay. You know, Hey, (laughs) how do I get more people to admire me? Right. And it's, it becomes a really uh, unhealthy game if you let it get out of control. Right. Because the, all these things that are meant to for your benefit, right, whether it's like exercising uh, or reading or things like that, when you when you lose sight of the real incentive, I think, is when it starts to get dangerous. Mm. I like that. That's a that's a very key note. Um, I want to go back to too while you're in high school there. Did yeah. you have any prospects that you wanted to go down a scientific route and become a pharmacist or like what were you thinking career wise? What was that headspace like? <laughs> yeah um i like to joke that my major was by process of elimination i don't okay. know about you because i definitely didn't know what i wanted to do in high school i was just more led along the lines of conventional asian uh you know definitions of success you could say because sure. to give uh, some background on that so two of my cousins uh when I, that i grew up with in wisconsin uh, they both ended up going to Harvard and becoming doctors. 
So wow. Harvard educated doctors. So that's already a pretty high standard. And they're saying, Hey, Jerry, you know, you want to be a doctor too? It's like, Oh yeah, I guess I could be a doctor. And um, so, yeah, I went in with the idea of being pre-med partly because I didn't really have anything else I was that interested in. Right. Like I, I wasn't the strongest at chemistry or physics. Um, you know, my English essays were, you know, I got by somehow <laughs> you figure out the standard five paragraph essay. Um, and so it's like, well, what's left? It's like, well, I'm good at memorizing stuff. Yeah. Biology sounds great. You know, <laughs> let's, let me, let me stick with that. And, um, I mean, yeah, we had ideas of what it's like to be a doctor. Um, but as some people have recently shed light on, on the reasons Asians become doctors, Ronnie Cheng had a great bit on saying, Hey, this isn't about patient care. It's about the good life. Um, it's, it's, it's about gaining a quick amount of money and prestige. Like right. this is how we prove ourselves. Um, they don't, they don't care what skin color you are if they have to address you as MD. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair as long as people are honest about it. Right. It's, but I have plenty of friends who became doctors because they were successful going down this path and they're like, Oh my gosh, I still have bills and marital stress and I have to raise kids. And this, this, why didn't this end? Right. right. They thought that they hit this button of Asian immigrant success and they think, Oh, finally I can exhale. It's like, no, you're just getting started. Wow. I, how many people are you seeing, um, that come from a similar cultural background that fall into this bubble or this pattern that you, that you saw in your personal life? Is this something that's like common and widespread? Oh man. I, I feel like I see it more and more. Um, wow. Just all these, all these people I know, right. They, they think that med school will satisfy them or, you know, engineering will satisfy them. Um, and even if they don't, they're too afraid to speak up when their parents are the ones pushing them. Um, and so on one hand, right, like this Asian chain that pushed us to be productive and successful, you know, we finally, we, you know, we graduated, finally, we got the job, we, you know, we got married and had the kids and it's like, why am I not happier? Um, right. Like, I mean, we, yeah. and there's just this very limited skill set and thinking set um, that comes with, you know, this immigrant mindset. And again, like, I'll give grace. I understand, Hey, we have, we're outsiders. We need to prove ourselves over and over again. Uh, but now that that's kind of in place, you know, what do we need to do differently? Right. Um, Jeremy Lin is an easy example, right? Uh, he wanted to play basketball and then all these other Asian parents are criticizing his parents saying, Oh no, that's not how you, that he's not going to be successful with that. Like, why don't you even bother? Then he gets into Harvard because that's, that's the one that's there's a shorter line for that. Right. And then all of a sudden all these Asian parents are like, well, hey, what, what sport does my kid need to play in order to get into Harvard, right? They, they never, they continue to, re, they refuse to believe that that is a possibility for their kids in order to get into a good school. Oh, that's so fascinating to hear. I, when did you first reflect and start to actually cognitively realize this was something a part of your life? Because I know like for me, right, when I was in high school, I didn't know how to mm -hmm. grasp or, or handle or even reflect on the emotions I was facing. So at what period? Was it college for you? Was it later? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it, it didn't happen until later. Really. Okay. It didn't happen until probably about 10 years ago, uh, nine or 10 years ago when I really started to wonder what am I, what am I really living for? What am I, what do I want in my life? What would be, uh, successful for me? And, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
I'm grateful for the career I've had as a pharmacist so far. It's allowed me a fairly high quality of life and I've had a lot of great people along the way. Um, but part of it was just recognizing, I think about four or five years ago when I was like in a more, more of a multicultural setting. And I started to realize that what made me an outsider, what I felt, what made me feel like an outsider was actually what allowed me to stand out and how I started to feel unique. Right. Like my, my, all these cross-cultural influences that have come through, you know, salsa dancing is not something I would have chosen for myself, but now it's a hobby that I can't get away from. Right. How did that then, come about? You know, oh God, <laughs> it's a great journey uh, to amuse you. Right. It's what's funny is still trying to convince Hispanic woman I can dance. It's, just like, <laughs> can it's like, no, what, why did I go to all this trouble? Um, so yeah, to unpack that uh, aspect. Basically, it first started uh, as a freshman in college. There was a formal we were um, having in the spring, and they said, hey, this time we're going to do salsa dancing. And I tried, and the lesson they taught was terrible. Like, it, it just didn't set us up for success at all. And so, you know, we go to the formal with a couple basic steps, and this year, like, this is hard and boring, and I don't know if I'll ever be good at it. So there's this fixed mind that that's what I did for most of the time. It's like, well, if you're not good at it after, if you don't get the hang of it after two or three times, then just don't bother, right? just like it's just that wall is closed and um funny thing is when i got to pharmacy school which was in memphis um i a friend of mine was like you have to give it another shot like yeah you have to try it again and so my by that time i was sick of studying and so i went out for more lessons and then i actually kind of got pretty good at it you know decently and then by the time i was about to graduate i was like you know i really this is really fun but then i moved back to knoxville where my family was and um, there's no salsa scene there. There's a swing dance scene there, which is great. That was actually my first love in terms of social dancing, but I wasn't focused on that anymore. So for many years, there was just this really bad cycle of, I get rusty, I lose confidence. I try to get back out there. I'm like, oh, I missed this. And then, you know, but I'm not uh, working at it enough to sustain that talent and confidence. And then all of a sudden it's, so it's this is really unproductive loop. Um, and even when I moved back to uh, Houston 11 years ago, um, I, I didn't get into dancing. Um, a bunch of the friends that I met at the church that I was starting to go to all were two-stepping. And so I was like, okay, I guess I better learn this instead. Uh, but then about seven years ago, when I started to get plugged back in with the more multicultural group and Venezuelan friend was like, hey, they're doing free dancing downtown. Uh, come join us. I did. I tell people all it took was one hot blonde. And I was like, I got to bring my A game to dance with her. And then that's that state of flow, which she sent me high, continually talks about. And then I experienced that for an entire song. And then I said, why did I stay away from this for so long? And then after that, it's just been, oh, I'm back. I got to go dancing like every week. I I love that. I, we have, we have a similar connection there. My buddy, Eddie Quiroga in high school, he Uh got me hooked. There was $5 student salsa dancing downtown in the city Uh of Chicago. And, and I just Uh went and I started going and I fell in love. Um, I'm curious, what is, do you do just salsa? Do you do all the variants like bachata, merengue, salsa, or what's, what's sort of your favorite if you, if you have one? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. No, I've, I'm happy to meet a fellow dancer, Chad. So glad we were able to connect with you. Um, cause that, cause we could unpack that for a whole nother episode. I'm sure. Oh, um, I, I have a yeah, couple salsa. questions. So. Oh, please. Yeah. Line them up. We got time. Um, yeah, basically salsa is easily my strongest. Um, I do bachata. I can do merengue. Uh, merengue, I usually just save the mileage for, I'd rather just, you know, I'll, I'll sit out the merengue <laughs> song to save my energy for 
to the salsa. I'll, I'll go ahead and admit, bachata, like, I can do the basic steps. I can't do some of the fancier stuff. Like, I'll watch, like, bachata sensual, and I'm just like, nope, can't mm, roll like yeah, that. Yeah, when they're, but, like, entangling uh, their knees together and stuff. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and so it's kind of it's kind of ironic that I struggle to think of myself as a good bachata dancer because the, whenever I dance with a friend with bachata, and I just, like, oh, they don't care if I'm good or not. And actually, I actually do <laughs> comes out. more stuff I didn't think I was capable of. Yeah, that's <laughs> the way. And it's just such a great reminder, just like, hey, First, have fun. Like when you have fun, your partner will have fun, and uh, it's it's a it's a great thing like that. Uh, but yeah, uh, salsa is my strongest. I actually recently had to acquire onto timing um, because okay. that's starting to pick up uh, in Houston. Um, a lot more studios are being intentional about making both options available, and so same thing, right? You're just like, oh, I'm not good at this. And then one of my dancer friends was just like, get over yourself and put in the work. You'll be fine. And I said, yeah. okay. And so I did. I'm trying to get more men into it from a, from another male's perspective. What would you say are some of like mm-hmm. the best traits or qualities to becoming a partner dancer and going out in social dancing? Yeah, I love this question um, because it happens all the time. Um, first, like understand that it's just it's your choice to have fun. It doesn't matter how much skill other people's have you can always have more fun. And like the feedback I get from women dancers is always, oh, it's attitude. Yeah, skill has a certain, you know, minimum threshold, but at the end of the day, we'd rather dance with someone fun than someone who's skilled and stuck up. And I'm the same way. There's, I've, I've tried to dance with skilled people and they just look bored when I'm dancing with them. And it's just like, okay, well, hey, you know, glad I found that out. And yeah, I just won't bother you anymore. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and that's okay. Like I've realized I have to, I have to remind myself, even if they get shot down a couple of times, which is still, you know, I can still feel the sting of that uh, just to trust that, Hey, you know what? Uh, just keep asking, right. Just eventually you'll find someone who says yes and just make the most of it and be grateful for that. Um, so yeah, basically the simple formula is if you get up to like an intermediate level okay. um, of skill, but you make the girl feel alive while you're dancing with her. I mean, yeah, that's, you don't really need anything else. Sure. Yeah, you want to have some basic level of competence and timing and technique and making sure that you take good care of her. Uh, but they all, the tie-breaking factor is always going to be show her you enjoy dancing with her, right? Make her look good mm-hmm. and be golden. That's awesome. So I, if there are any men out there that are hearing this, take that risk, go take the chance. And if you're a younger guy, it's the best way to just meet older women and start to feel comfortable around peers that are, you know, different ages and variants than you. Um, so I want to go back yeah. to college. Let's maybe dive into to yeah. that, that period of time. So you go to school for biology. Mm-hmm. Is that your uh, bachelor's degree? That was my bachelor's. Yeah. That was my major and what I ultimately finished a bachelor's in. Correct. Uh, where did you attend university? Rice uh, University here in Houston. Okay. And how was that experience? What, what did you love about school? What do you hate? Do you believe there's still value for kids nowadays to be going to college? And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, this is a great um, package to unpack because yeah, college, um, I don't know for people who've read some of Malcolm Gladwell's work, uh, but he talks about, hey, if you're in like science and technology and engineering, you're better off being a big fish in a small pond if you expect to go far instead of trying to 
take your chances at the big, you know, at the biggest ponds and trying to separate yourself at the, at the top. And on one hand, that is kind of insulting where you just kind of like, Hey, why wouldn't you want to go up against the best at the same time, realistically, like play the long game. Um, and so, yeah, basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, in high school, I finished in the top 10 in my class, but when I got to rice, I realized there were a lot of people who were much more talented and driven than I was. And uh, what I say about med school and, you know, pre-med in general is that if you don't have a clear target of who you want to be and who you want to serve when you get that degree, you're not going to make it. And that's kind of where I was. It's just to say, well, I kind of, I guess I'll be pre-med. That doesn't work. <laughs> and so um, at Rice, it was a very fast paced environment. Pretty much the kids who were uh, my classmates were already pretty self-driven and you know had a level of success that I struggled to to match partly because and again this isn't my mom but my mom would just you know and she's the one pushing me and used to being pushed like she's going to be like hey you might want to turn off the tv right it's time for you to do your homework but when I go to rice right she's not there anymore to think to myself oh great I can watch all the Sunday afternoon football that I want (laughs) and then my grades come back terrible and then it's like well what happened (laughs) you know it's like okay uh, I need to really step up my game and so uh, the really sobering thing was just that in the middle of, you know, getting down on myself about some of the grades that I made and, you know, making some decisions that took away time that I could have been studying. And then the extra shame from my parents that came from that was some of the extracurriculars that I was involved with. Um, you know, I ended up getting a C in organic chemistry, like my, my uh, fall semester year or sophomore year. And, you know, like when you don't know failure on that level, right? That just feels like death. You're just like, okay, I guess right. yeah, I'm not even going to try to apply to med school with that on my transcript. Jeez. Um, and so I to allow this possibility of being coming and going down the med school path anymore. What would a, a reasonable healthcare path alternative be? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I said, well, you know, pharmacy seems to be okay. Um, there's things I like about it. There's still a chance to serve people. It's still certainly respectable. Um, yeah, let me go down the pharmacy path. And so the interesting thing with pharmacy at the time, it's much more standardized now, but at the time, um, there was no, um, across the board standard that said prerequisite that you had to have a bachelor's before you started. And so when I applied to pharmacy school, my junior year, um, I got accepted and they were said, you can start now if you want, like, as soon as you're done with your junior year, just start pharmacy school. And I was not ready for that. Um, my parents who were kind enough to take care of my tuition bills at the time were heavily supportive of that. Hey, save us a year of tuition. Just get your life started. Just, just, just get the next chapter of your life started. And of course, all my friends were like, Jerry, stay, you know, how can you not have a senior year? And that was a hard decision. Um, and the compromise that I made was that I told my parents, I said, okay, if, if uh, pharmacy school classes can still Uh, be used to complete my bachelor's requirements, then I will leave from pharmacy school because the important thing in their eyes, right, was for me to finish my degree. So if I could do that and still save a year's worth of tuition costs by starting my pharmacy school career early, then golden, then I I would honor that. Yeah. So um, I did. And that was hard, Uh, but it was, it was the right decision. It, It took a lot of years before I finally appreciated my parents' perspective on this. Um, and, you know, it was still nice to walk with my bachelors with my friends. Um, and uh, admittedly, it was nice to get pharmacy school done a year early anyway. Because, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need to go through that anymore. Um, 
but yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time for me. I, I didn't really start to appreciate the undergrad life and the opportunities that Rice had to offer until I got to my junior year when I was able to focus less on simply getting through classes because uh, Rice is an interesting environment in that they say, hey, here are all these great extracurriculars and opportunities and here's classes, figure it out. And you know, it's not that they didn't have academic support services or anything like that, but um, I didn't, you didn't hear a lot of people who use them. And I think almost uh, you people didn't want to admit that they would, you know, have to use them if things were, things were kind of rough. So, um, you know, and it's funny when you have people like, you know, General Schwarzkopf or Nelson Mandela, and you're just like, I have to study, but this once in a lifetime, you know, historical figure is here. <laughs> I guess I'm just going to get a C on my essay, right? And you're just like, I don't know. Um, but it seemed like I classmates that didn't have to deal with that. They managed to do everything and still not spread themselves thin so jealous sure. for them but you know somehow i survived and got a degree as well so yeah. anyway yeah that's beautiful so when you're studying um the sciences and specifically biology mm-hmm. in your interpretative opinion what is the most uh, artistically creative curious or beautiful part of that science yeah that's a that's a new question i haven't heard that in lots so thank you um you're welcome I, I think yeah i think the beauty of it is just seeing how intricate a process it is Mm. and everything functioning exactly the way it needs to uh you know obviously there's deviance and you know obviously we have things like cancer stuff like that but to see such a complex set of chemicals and cells that seem to be on their own level of programming and don't need you to continually intervene in order to function it's, it's just, you know, the human is a beautiful machine. And the sooner, the sooner we do more to actually take care of it in a, in a way where we actually truly want the other person to flourish is really, uh, I think, the turning point for all of this. And, you know, because you see all these terrible things where, you know, people are trying to sell candy to diabetics. And, you know, you're just like, that's, you're like, I can't believe, like, why would you think that's a good idea? Like, what, how do you live with yourself when you call Talk this Talk about like the that? bane of existence, uh, yeah. the fats and sugars industries in the 90s, that, that fight. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's, yeah. I, that's so fascinating. I've never really... Um, that's new to me. I like that. It's pushing my boundary of thinking of the idea of uh, autonomy serving as a beautiful and creative system um, in this mm-hmm. biological space. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So sure. you finish you finish uh, your undergraduate degree while mm-hmm. in pharmacy school. What's yeah. next? Do you immediately go on to be a pharmacist um, or what, where do you go to next? Yeah, good question. So yeah, pharmacy school was, a, was definitely an interesting experience. Um, definitely a, a contrast from the years at Rice, which, you know, when I was in Knoxville, not a lot of Asians and the ones that, uh, you know, I was with friends with by default, I didn't always get along with those. And then I come to Houston and the irony is that um, all these other Asians already used to hanging out in their own like crowds. And so I still didn't have any really (laughs) to hang out with. And I'm like, man, I thought I would finally get over feeling like an outsider. Uh, And then Memphis, interestingly enough, when I was there for pharmacy school, um, yeah, you know, went back to the, well, critical mass of Asians. All right, we're hanging out together. And, you know, this time around, we're a little more mature. And so we actually, you know, got along better and, you know, mm. things like that. But um, yeah, pharmacy school was school. And then, you know, it was also an interesting time because it was, you know, in grad school, we have to live off campus. At Rice, we were very sheltered on campus. Um, you know, they took care of all our meals. We didn't have to worry about any of that. But in Memphis, um, you know, we were kind of on our own. We had to find our own housing. We had to, 
take care of our own meals. And so that was an adjustment for sure. Um, so I finally got into a good routine my third year in school, right before rotation started. And then, you know, um, had to start thinking about, yeah, what are my career options and career choices? What would be the best thing? Um, the schools all have this uh, vision for the students to become clinical specialists where you work in a hospital. Um, doctors, once they establish a diagnosis, it's up to the pharmacist to manage the therapy. But the thing is, um, it's one thing for the schools to have that vision. It's another to actually create a space where people will find jobs being able to do that. And, you know, in the meantime, you have this entirely different uh, industry in chain pharmacy, which has their own agenda and mm. offers very fat paychecks to, to, you know, to work for them. Mm. And, you know, and so this is where the Asian definition of success comes back into play. And my mom, when she saw my offer letter specifically from the chain pharmacy that she was a fan of, insisted that I take that job offer even though friends in the industry all were like, no, like you don't want to work for them. Like, they, right. You know, Go. Yeah. Find a cool niche firm or something. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm living, I moved back home for my fourth year um, just because it allowed me to save some money and things like that. And so my mom was very much in my ear about where she felt my life needed to go. And um, you know, at the time in dealing with conflict, you know, coming back to that angle, right? I was just like, oh, let me just give in. I'm just tired of having this argument. All right, yeah, let me just sign with this company. Um, which, after the initial orientation, I realized was a very rude awakening as to what I actually signed up for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, all of a sudden, I'm working every other weekend. I have no social life, you know, and then I'm working these hours. And this is still when pharmacy was still in the good, you know, in you know, in yeah, good like shape. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I just was, uh, I was really in my mind, like I was just a very, you know, uh, blatant pessimist. I'm just like, oh, I guess my best chances at a career that I want are over. You know, my mom's trying to push me to marry this girl. I guess, you know, all my best chances on that are also out the door. <laughs> uh, you know, all these other things. And I was just like, I guess, you know, you know, my kind of like back to the whole med school thing when that door closed, I guess I'm just not going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and people are like, why aren't you happier? Like you have like this nice paycheck, you know, uh, you've got this great girl lined up and, you know, why aren't you happier about this? And I was just like, cause it's not what I wanted. Right. right. I mean, for me at the time, you know, I was, the irony was that my mom and I wanted the same thing for myself. I wanted a good job. I wanted to marry a girl, mm-hmm. uh, but not on her terms. Um, and so, yeah, after she gave me bad advice on the career side, I definitely didn't trust her on the relationship advice, even though, like, ironically, she would have been better suited to start off with the relationship stuff first, <laughs> you know, because right. um, she's never worked a day in pharmacy in her life. But somehow she <laughs> felt like she she somehow she felt like she was the expert on it because she was my mom. So yeah. that sounds like mothers. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. That's true. Uh, I wanted to go, uh, touch while you're a pharmacist, while you're going through mm-hmm. school. What are some of the major ethical dilemmas that a pharmacist or someone who is in that career path might face? And uh, how do you handle those as a pharmacist? Mm, Great question. Uh, I mean, the simple, one of the simpler, but more profound examples that um, there was some controversy over back when I first started pharmacy, my pharmacy career uh, was when pharmacists in like, I think Illinois for working for Walgreens, uh, refused to dispense the morning after pill for women who might have accidentally gotten pregnant. And so Walgreens says, no, you're not allowed to impose your personal sense of ethics or religion in these situations. You're supposed to just sell the, the, the pill if they, if they say they need it. 
and the pharmacist got fired. Um, and you know, so what do you, you know, what do you do with that? You're like, well, I have my integrity. It's like, well, does the pay the bills? And it's like, well, there are, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a fun one. Um, other times, um, pain management is a huge area, uh, that's subjective. And, um, I'll, the other example, like I'll give the other extreme. So one of my friends needed hip replacement surgery a couple of years ago. And right at the, at, at this stage, none of the chain pharmacies around where he lived were, would fill his prescription. And is even with clinical documentation, even though he's like, you know, was it wearing, an opioid like, or some sort or? Yeah. 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 It was a, yeah. it was a Norco prescription. And so, yeah, they're like, Oh no, we don't, we're just not going to deal with that controversy. And it's just like, he's in a Walker and he has like his discharge <laughs> notes. I don't know what else you need uh, to oh. prove that this is for a legitimate medical need. Uh, but mm. yeah, I mean, in Houston, the people, I'll call it the dark side. Like a lot of independent pharmacies, since they've struggled to really um, keep their lights on and bills paid uh, because trying to compete against chains is a, is a lost cause, um, they resort to filling cash scripts where there's doctors that basically- uh, Methadone, pay, right? You pay money. Yeah, you pay money and they give you a combination of Nor- Norco, Soma, and Xanax. And they're just like, well, you know, I'd rather- stay alive with compromised ethics than to admit that I need to shut down the business because I don't want to feel like a failure. And so, yeah, sometimes the line between ethics and money is, uh, is very tough, especially if you're on the business side for pharmacy, you know, they make it sound like a no brainer. Oh, well, you know, duh, you've worked too hard to get your license for someone to take it away just because you can, you know, your, your paychecks got desperate, but that's exactly the kind of thing we're dealing with. So yeah, a lot of questions around, you know, can you know birth control and, and how that can be used and then yeah legitimate pain needs and really you know i can't speak for everybody because they're you know they're all on different planes but at the same time the, the simple question to ask yourself is like what decision do you have to make so you feel good about yourself when you know what lets you sleep well at night right right like what can you say you know hey we disagree but i know i did the right thing for myself and my license and just trust that the patient will be able to find someone else to accommodate it, assuming it's a legitimate medical need. Because if it's not, yeah, I mean, yeah, like stand your ground. You've worked too hard for that license for someone to pressure you into filling a script that may not be legitimate. Sure. That's a, yeah. that's a fantastic, well-rounded answer. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, the opioid epidemic. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on it? Is there anyone to, I don't really like to put blame on someone, but is there a time or a period that we can blame? How do we get out of a situation like this? Uh, yeah, basically just overall generalized thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's definitely a complicated situation. Um, I think the financial motive on the healthcare side also just makes it really difficult because when you have companies like Purdue, which say, no, OxyContin is not dependent. It doesn't cause dependency. But then you have all this empirical evidence that says otherwise. Um, yeah, when basically that's the biggest factor I have a problem with is when people okay. are simply like when the first uh, priority is money and not the patient's well-being, right? Um, and so, yeah, uh, with that in mind, I think the biggest thing is just to say, okay, um, what are some ways that we can help this patient's pain from a whole body approach, right? And not just a pill standpoint. Um, I mean, I'll be happy to tell people the more time I spend around drugs, the less I hope I ever have to use them. <laughs> like that's, that's what I, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, like I'll give an example. So a doctor friend of mine, uh, is, 
he has a pain management practice and he does everything he can to not resort to opioids. And he understands, he's like, hey, there's a physical, there's a mental, there's a spiritual and emotional aspect to pain. And we need to really get to the bottom of that. And whether that involves physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, let's, you know, treat the whole body uh, first. Um, and if opioids are, are necessary, um, sure, but in a very conservative way. Uh, yeah, I think that would be a good start. That's fantastic. Um, so I want to talk about uh, holistic medicine. And I think one of the ones that's been coming up uh, recently, it's more natural is uh, psychedelics and using, you know, natural psychedelics okay. for therapy and cognitive benefits. What is your stance on that, um, knowing and having an understanding of biology in that? And, and do you think it could be beneficial? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely um, an interesting opportunity, I think, for healthcare to really dive into. Um, I know doctors who don't believe in it at all. I know others that are completely sold on it. In fact, uh, I know pharmacists that can get certified in CBD products just to say, hey, look, we're going to help you navigate this well. Um, my, my simple take on it is this, just because I haven't done a lot of research on it personally, but sure. um, I mean, on one hand, you know, if you need, if the brain needs help because it's stuck in some, you know, unproductive things, uh, you know, thinking or some habits that it's causing, yeah, maybe you need to you know, alter the brain chemistry a little bit in order to, you know, kind of give it a boost. Um, by the same token, if that's the only way you're going to help a person get through the pain and just completely deny them the reality of the situation, uh, that's also not healthy either. So. Uh, much like alternative medicine therapies and other supplements, right? Most of what I tell people is, hey, you know what? If whatever has been working for you or whatever you've been trying beforehand isn't working, sure. You know, I'm not here to, to rule out any options that you might need to consider. Uh, at the same time, just understand, you know, the risks. Just make it a very educated decision if you're going to proceed with this therapy of any kind. Okay. Very nice. Um, I want to ask about your interpretation of the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines and both that plus just mRNA technology in general. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, we're going through the whole circuit here, huh? Sure. <laughs> That's great. Uh, no, I mean, no, these are, these are real issues and people need to know them. Sure. Um, so in terms of the vaccine, uh, What's interesting is I've heard, you know, I've heard Peter Hotez, you know, who's locally here at Baylor. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard a couple of different scientists really stump hard for the vaccine. Um, and while, you know, while people can have their concerns, they make the case that if they don't have integrity in this process, then they're the ones on the line. They're the ones that won't get any business. You know, they won't have, a, their reputation is, is in tatters, right? If this if the, if the case that they're making for vaccines is not without merit. Um, and so, you know, once the vaccine started getting distributed, you know, people, whether they like it, whether, whether they want to realize it or not, we've, we've been pushing to get back to pre-COVID levels for quite some time now, um, almost at a rate that I'm a little alarmed at, even though as I'm happy to hug people again, I'm happy to see smiles again. Um, I believe the vaccine is, is worth investing in. And I, I can say this for sure, because I'm thankful for the fact that I am vaccinated mm -hmm. and I went to a lot of trouble to get that vaccine. And I'm happy for the security and the freedom that is currently offering me. And, you know, on the flip side, I have a technician who refuses to get vaccinated. She's just like, nope, uh, I'm spooked by it. You know, 
Like, and it didn't matter that her parents got infected and then she had to stay home because of contact tracing. And then, you know, she's all mad about the fact that she had to stay home. And it's like, but, you know, what do you expect? You refuse right. to get the vaccine. Your family, you, you may probably discourage your family from getting it. And then they got the actual, like, what would you rather deal with? The side effects of the vaccine or the actual virus, right? Mm. Um, and vaccines, like anything, are a calculated risk. But it's a very wise calculated risk. Again, I'm happy to honor people's uh, decisions. I certainly can't push them toward anything. And yeah. at the same time, I would ask them, well, what risk are you willing to take? The risk of the vaccine side effects or the risk of getting COVID <laughs> without any protection? <laughs> Um, in terms of mRNA technology, yeah, that's um, what I was going to go do next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, I'd have to do a little more research, but at the same time from my, my initial, you know, shoot from the hip take is, Hey, you know what? It's an opportunity. Right. And the more that we refine it, the more we can do with it, the, the bigger, the benefit, uh, that we can have for our quality of life and our health. If we are willing to invest in real measures to help it really grow. Uh, it's the same thing with the vaccine, right? People keep criticizing it or they refuse. And there's, I won't get into the whole anti-vax thing. That's, it's just not a, <laughs> they've made up their minds regardless of what I might say. But yeah, all sure, I would right. say, yeah. But all I would say is, Hey, you know, if there's, a, if this technology is worth, you know, are we, if we're willing to experience a little failure and learn from that failure and do it quickly in a way that we can really build out more products that can really help protect us from uh, preventable causes. Yeah, let's do it. Fantastic. What are your thoughts yeah. on the handling of the initial outbreak of the pandemic in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else can you say? Well, and you know, sure. part of it, and the reason I, you know, to give some context to that answer, um, I don't know. Have you read either of Bob Woodward's books on Trump? fear or rage no i have not but i will add those to my list yeah and the another one that uh, really who is the, the author um bob woodward he was the guy involved with uh, deep throat and the nixon uh you know uh, scandal back in oh. Watergate scandal back in the day oh, yeah. Watergate. Same, same, the same nice. journalist yeah yeah, yeah. okay very nice uh, yeah and also uh mary trump his niece uh, wrote a book called uh, too much and never enough and basically and she's a, a, a clinical psychologist and she basically gives her take on not only from a mental health aspect but also from a family aspect as to how oh interesting and basically what i'll what i'll quote is just the fact that you know mary trump at the end of this book not to give away too much guys but she says you know if trump had been so insecure and wanted to feel like he deserved all the glory for this for the success mm -hmm. of of you know triumphing over this supposed pandemic like if he just delegated to the right people in place and just authorized you know ppe to be made and you know locked down and try to reassure people we might have come out a whole lot better um and i'm sure i'm gonna get some hate mail for what i just said but you know it's uh, it's um but it is it's when all you hear about is his ego and apparently they withheld PPE from, you know, states that wouldn't kiss his ring and, yeah. you know, all these other things, you know, just wanting to go back to his set of beliefs instead of really listening and learning and, you know, relying on the strength of the, of the people on his team. Right. Um, it's just, it's just alarming really that, you know, yeah, we had to lose 500,000 people mm -hmm. uh, to get this lesson across. And then even now, people still refuse to get the vaccine, even though supply is, is in stock here. And then there are other countries, you know, that they're, want they're the vaccine, but can't it, yeah. get it. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough. And I can say this because 
I mean, I saw, I saw COVID happen firsthand, not thankfully, not with my family, but you know, I met, at some point, my pharmacy team, we were down to me and my lead tech because Holy one of my God. techs got COVID. She was out for two weeks. Another, you know, another, my driver got a milder version of COVID, but he had to stay home. And so at one point it's just me and my lead technician playing the two man game. Hey, you pick, I roll, like, you know, which one do mm -hmm. I, which one do we do? And we just waited until pretty much everyone was back at full strength. And yeah, admittedly, I was at a breaking point. Wow. So yeah, it's, this isn't, this isn't just me like hating on administration for a lack no, of, yeah. this is me saying, Hey, I saw this up close and firsthand and we definitely did not handle this well. No, I agree. Uh, I think no matter what side you're on, you could definitely see that there were some critical infrastructure and large scale initiatives yeah. we could have handled or done at least that would have yeah. been very, very effective in the short term. Yeah. yeah. You're like, Oh yeah, bad news. No, you're fired. And it's like, Nope, that doesn't <laughs> work guys. It works for reality work. TV though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You're right. For reality TV, it's wonderful. So I want to get back into, uh, you're a pharmacy tech, you're down that route now, and then you want to become a conflict resolution coach. What, yeah. what sparked you? What finally made you inside of yourself be like, you know what, I'm, I'm changing my path. I, I know what I want to do now. I know I want to help others and give back in this way. Yeah, it was, uh, it's definitely an interesting path for sure. Cause so many people are saying, how did you go from healthcare <laughs> professional to this? Like, and I, you know, in my head, it makes sense. Cause I was the one who lived it. So right. to bridge that gap. Yeah. So basically it goes like this is that, yeah, after five years at the chain pharmacy that I, uh, decided was no longer going to be my career choice. Um, I wanted to actually get into teaching students. I wanted to have some semblance of an academia job. And unfortunately, because I had settled for the fat paychecks that chain offers, I did not have a, I didn't go for a residency. I didn't go any for any other kind of, you know, postdoc training uh, for a conventional um, university job. And sure. so I said, well, you know, my other friend seems to be working and she seems to be teaching students, but she's not in academia either. Let me ask her, you know, about her path. And so it turns out she works for a pharmacy consulting company uh, here in Houston. And so me being in Knoxville at the time, and, she, and I showed her my CV and resume, I was just like, hey, I want to get into teaching. How do I get into teaching? And she says, hey, you know what? Um, I just got promoted and my previous teaching position is open. Do you want to apply for this? And I said, absolutely. Let me nice. throw my hat in the ring. And so, um, you know, I, I do a good job during the interviews. And next thing I know, I am taking a part-time position. I'm foregoing, you know, the nice salary and the benefits to take on a part-time position driving from Knoxville to Houston uh, wow. to take on this job. And, you know, I thought this would be it. And I thought, oh, this would be, uh, this is the last company I ever have to work for. 11 months later, I get fired. <laughs> and it was my fault. I tell people now, you know, I okay. just didn't, I didn't want to see it at the time. And this is, this is a term, I'll, I'll say the term that I didn't have a chance to elaborate in a previous podcast on another platform, but uh, I had the term successful victim. By that, I say, hey, you know what? There is some degree of success. Obviously, we're hard enough to get this degree, but um, you know, some things are still unfair. There's still a sense of entitlement that I still had. And unfortunately, it showed up in this job. And so when things didn't go the way my supervisor wanted to, I would spin it or you know, blame or make excuses and, you know. 11 months in that regard is very generous. <laughs> like it should, yeah. I probably should have been fired a lot sooner. Um, and so, yeah, part of the problem though, is that I just didn't know how to deal with a, 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 uh, my boss who was upset with me, but I didn't, I'd struggled to deal with conflict throughout most of my life anyway, because of the way that I was brought up. Uh, we don't, you know, we're not supposed to rock the boat. We're not supposed to uh, share when we're upset about something. Mm, we're just supposed to keep it to ourselves that. and just, and yeah, and just hopefully get over it after, if, after mm. enough time. 
Um, and so, yeah, this is the, this is the blueprint for conflict. Even in chain pharmacy, they're just like, Hey, no patient's always right. If they're upset with you. You got to find a way to make them happy. And it's just kind of like, why do I hate myself at the end of the day? Right. And even though I, I took care of the situation, but I didn't feel like I had a chance to stand my ground or anything. Um, and so, yeah, basically I'll get to how that transitions to conflict resolution and through my career journey. So, cool. um, after I got fired, I, you know, I ended up at an independent job, uh, House of cards, filling for crooked doctors, paychecks were bouncing. It was just a bad situation. And it comes back to the you know, ethics dilemma. You're just like, well, you won't pay me unless I fill these crooked scripts. So, okay, I guess I need to do that. Right. And I had a very misguided. Human. Yeah. You oh, yeah. Live. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very, it was a very misguided view of grace where it's just kind of like, well, you know, even though he didn't hold up his end of the bargain, let me, let me honor mine. And everyone's like, Jerry, if he's not paying you, leave. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I should have <laughs> Um, so the next company my friends got me with was a better company, uh, but money was tight. And they said, hey, we like you, but we can't pay you more than two, uh, eight hours a week. And I said, uh-oh. And so they said, well, um, if you want more hours, you can go to Austin. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going to go work in Austin, which you know, people are like, you could end up in worse places. And that's true. But uh, it just wasn't home at this point. So anyway, so this is 2012 now. And so I'm working out in Austin with no idea what my life would look like. And... Um, that summer, I was asked to help facilitate some leadership workshops through a pharmacy nonprofit that some of my friends run. I had been facilitating workshops on the fraternity side, but not on the leadership side. And so they said, hey, we know you facilitate. Can you help us with this? And I said, sure. And so the weird thing is with teaching leadership, um, something kind of flipped in my head because before leadership was something that was hard and I would never be good at. Uh, and then after seeing it modeled for me and then also like having to teach it to other people, I said, well, what if I allowed for that possibility? What if I could be a good leader? Um, what would that involve? What kind of work would that involve? What would that look like? How would I carry myself? And so when the opportunity came to either stay part-time in Austin, which was a great job, you know, great team, um, or take on a full-time manager position in Houston, um, by now Austin started to feel a little more comfortable, but I knew like Houston was home and I was like, I can't stay safe, I need to take on these manager challenges. And so um, even then I struggled with conflict because I struggled to write up technicians who were underperforming. I struggled to have difficult conversations. And eventually I got in trouble with management because they said, hey, we don't think you're managing your techs well. And so we gotta, we gotta do all that. And so that was hard. Um, and then even after the next couple of jobs after that, I got better at just problem solving, which is what I think kept my doors, uh, doors open for more jobs. But the interesting thing is the jobs weren't lasting very long anyway, because the business models are very tough for independents to survive in a field with chain pharmacies. Um, So, so on one hand, I was hopping, you know, to new icebergs. On the other hand, they were still icebergs and they were Mm -hmm. still melting quickly. And so four years ago, uh, when my previous job went under, um, I had to ask myself, I was like, well, I'm tired of chasing scripts. I'm tired of fighting insurance companies that tell me how much I'm worth and how much they're willing to pay me for the same amount of work but I really love teaching these leadership workshops. Um, what would a career in that look like? And so I started to um, you know, ask some coaches in the space, how do you build a business? How do you have establish a career in this kind of field? Because I know what kind of help I wish I'd had um, when, I was, when I was growing up to deal with you know, cultural challenges and just people who are upset with me and I didn't know how to stand my ground or speak up for myself. And so now, yeah, I wanted to do that full time. It was more focused on leadership development, but in all the sure. conversations I've had with my co- with my clients and then other workshops I've done for groups, everything, like every one of my friends says, hey, like it's right 
right in front of you, like your niche is conflict because every deals with some kind of unresolved conflict. Um, and it's not just from a professional side, it's from a personal side too. Um, you know, just relationships and volunteer situations where people flake out or, um, you know, they're just not getting back to me or they're avoiding things. I've even had to evict a roommate at one point and that was a lovely lesson. That's a big conflict of, there. Eh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. And you realize basically the turning point, right, was when you realize that the situation will not get better on its own. Mm. And it's ultimately up to me to step in to do something about it. Because as long as I don't, they're not going to do it. And I have to, you know, realize that I can't afford to tolerate this anymore. So yeah, it's hard and difficult, but the cost of not acting is so much worse. I like that. So I want to, I want to go to um, the principles of a leader from your perspective. What is the secret sauce? What is the essential traits, characteristics? What does that look like? What does that feel like? How do I, as a person embody a leader? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of great literature out there on, you know, leadership and what I've learned and what I've realized is that every leadership coach has ultimately their own thesis. There are a lot of common themes over what uh, makes a leader. And so my thesis involves nine essential qualities and skills. Um, Imagine a Venn diagram, a conventional Venn diagram with integrity in the center. And then on the left circle, write the words within me. And there's four things there, which are vision, um, personal growth, uh, resilience, and responsibility. And then on the right circle, write the words beyond me. And then in the circle, you write things. There's four things. They are developing others, communication, conflict resolution, and legacy. And so that is my proprietary leadership framework. Damn, I like that thesis. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so is it's almost as if we have to use integrity to balance the constructs that we find on both sides of the dichotomy of of both in me and beyond me. Yes. Yep. Mm, Basically to leverage on that as uh, do I have integrity and character? And Mm. then also beyond me is the integrity in my relationships. Because if you don't have integrity in both, one leads to the other. The two are absolutely interconnected. Uh, Without integrity, uh, neither side will, will work. So this is fantastic. This is a great goal and a finish line. What is the roadmap or the steps that one could take if they don't possess these skills right now to get there? I mean, I think uh, there's a great principle in in the Heath Brothers books, which I continually recommend to people. And specifically in the book Switch, uh, one of the tips that they offer is to shrink the change. Um, And so basically you don't need to master this, you know, tonight, right? No one's asking you to run a marathon tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) But given that integrity is uh, such a key point in terms of how you honor your promises, right? How you, how you do, you know, who you are when no one's looking, how you act, even if other people are looking, right? Um, How do you build integrity, right? Mm -hmm. Do I need to start keeping promises? Do I need to start making sure that I don't make promises that I won't be able to keep? Because so often, right? I feel like a big frustrating point for me is when people say, oh yeah, yeah, let's get coffee sometime. But that's just the social pleasantry. They have yes. no real, they have no real way of like follow through and say, Hey, well, you know, here's three days. Like I'm available for coffee. Which one works for you? Right. Just go ahead and close the deal. Like right then and there. <laughs> don't just, don't just like, Oh yeah, let's do coffee sometime. It's like, you know, it's so funny you say that. Cause it, I have this big pet peeve of mine and it's mm-hmm. when people ask, Oh, how are you doing? 
just mm-hmm. as a pleasantry though because <laughs> yeah. it really undermines and demeans the, the purpose and the sake of a humans mm-hmm. and us wanting to connect but b the purpose of those those words that you're putting together in that sentence yeah yeah how mm-hmm. interested are you really right right yeah mm, that's that's fascinating so i wanted mm-hmm. to touch with conflict yeah. Now I'm a leader. I, I'm embodying these skill sets, this attribute. Um, I'm very inte- inte- I'm using integrity to my mm-hmm. strongest advantage. Yeah. What? How do I deal with conflict? Is there an action steps to handling conflict? Because I know every conflict is so different. Is there a roadmap to solving all of them, or do you just have to, you know, stay with your integrity and then hope it works <laughs> itself out? Like, what's 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 going on there with specifically yeah, yeah. handling conflict? No, great question. Yeah, you got to have a plan. You got to have a script, right? And it's uh, it's what you default to when, you know, everything in you wants to just shrink back and say, no, maybe I won't deal with it today. It's like, no, you, you'd better. So um, some of the tips that I offer, uh, the first is to get curious, mm. uh, right? First, let's just get curious about the situation. Um, what is my story about it? When I see work that isn't quite up to my expectations, you know, what's really going on? Uh, one of the best statements that John Maxwell uses, even though I feel like people reference him less and less these days with leadership, uh, but he says, you know, people don't always do what's expected, but people will always do what's inspected. And that's what I really love that, where it's just mm. like, hey, I'm not trying to pin you for work that you were slacking off on. I'm just going to shine a flashlight here and I just need to know what's going on. Right. Um, and so the first is to say, okay, let me stay curious about, hey, I'm wondering, I'm just wondering about this situation. Let me see what's going on. Uh, the second is to drum up 10 seconds of courage. Uh, what we, that's a phrase I took from a pharmacist friend of mine to say, hey, you know what? You don't need to be Superman in order to run toward the fire. You just need enough to, to get yourself rolling, right? Like, let me find 10 seconds of courage to send off that email, say, hey, it's been a week since we last talked and I was wondering if you could you know, tell me where you were with this. Or 10 seconds of courage, okay, let me pick up the phone and dial the number and okay, now we're calling. And if I hang up, they're gonna you know, start 69 me and call me right back and wonder why <laughs> I didn't follow through. Uh, so yeah, so first is to get curious. The second, yeah, 10 seconds of courage. Okay, now that I'm curious, let me go ahead and just ask and see, like, let me make sure I'm not missing anything, right? Let me just hear their side of things. And uh, the third is uh, just to take your ego out of it and just to say, hey, well, you know, hear their side. Uh, if you can, do the best you can to give them the benefit of the doubt, just to say, hey, I'm going to trust that this is my teammate and we're there for each other and I'm going to trust that they're going to come through for me. And if there's evidence elsewhere um, or that maybe to the contrary, let me address it with them as a teammate, right? Uh, make sure, hey, we're still on the same side. What's the, what's the end goal? Do we agree on what even the end goal is? Okay. Right. Um, yes or no? If the answer is yes, okay. What do you need me from me as a leader to make sure that we meet the expectation that we've agreed upon, right? So now it is shifting from confrontation to collaboration. And that is a common Smart. question I use in my coaching. How do you shift from confrontation to collaboration? It's just like, oh, okay. And it's funny to see people kind of pause and then they realize, oh, I'm on the wrong side of the table. I need to come alongside this person. And so we can attack this problem together and find the solution together. That's fantastic. I, I've that sums it up in a really good way. I I, uh, I want to ask and and move into who do you look up to as a mentor and a leader, and uh, do you have any recommendations for other people? I know you've been name dropping a few few people out there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, the 
the people that I really love. Yeah, John Maxwell was a, a clear, you know, he wrote a lot of great books on leadership. And even if I never met him personally, yeah, like I would say, you know, I'd love, I would hire him in a heartbeat if he, could, <laughs> if he were available. Um, the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, uh, they've written five great books uh, that have uh, that have influenced my uh, path as a leader. And also just uh, my, I incorporate that, their material into a lot of how I coach. And, um, I guess that Dan, yeah, both of them would be great because I guess, and the reason I say that is, uh, during COVID Dan actually had a webinar, um, available for his, uh, his newest book last March. And I tell you, Chad, like I about went schoolgirl crush when he showed up <laughs> on the screen and I'm just like, Oh my God, Oh my God, it's really him. Was it a fantastic um, seminar? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, the content itself was, I mean, I was I already read the book, so it wasn't like he was telling anything new. But just to hear his uh, interaction with the audience and their questions and things like that, it was just really, really, really inspiring. Because I know how much he's helped people through their books, and you know, just to see that. Um, I'm trying to think other names. Um, David Allen is another one I I would recommend more on the productivity side because he wrote a book called Getting Things Done. And his system is so great that you can get certified in his methods. Like that's how great Holy a brand cow. that uh, he's done for productivity. And so he's like, you know, I can't tell you which direction you're headed in, but I can tell you how to build a ship that's really, you know, going to be fast and lean and help you get there. So uh, those are the books I tend to coach around. And then um, others are other authors, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They wrote the book, Designing Your Life. Um, and yeah, just the principles they have in that book are are excellent in terms of his people I would recommend. So it's just like, hey, you know what? These guys are teaching some great stuff. Learn from them, please. Fantastic. Thank you for the recommendations. It's a little bit of a selfish question for me to add to my reading list. Not at all. No, I love meeting readers. I love swapping book titles. Absolutely. Please do. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask next, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Um, among variant Asian cultures, is mm -hmm. there a common thread or connection and or is there a common like disconnection or or different beliefs about each other how is that interpersonal relationship among different asian cultures function and work mm, great question yeah um i think the common theme is just recognizing the need for deference uh, the example that is used a lot is like the korean airline flight crews um that at some point were so deferential, you know, even when there were problems, they didn't want to upset the captain because they didn't want to go above their rank. They felt like, you know, telling them, alerting them of certain pitfalls that the captain might be oblivious to uh, would be disrespectful. And then, you know, not surprisingly, they had the worst safety rating of any major airline <laughs> until they came, until other people came in and were like, hey, like, what's this cultural barrier that's ultimately you know, oh, I don't want to, you know, lose face. And it's just like, you're going to lose your life if you, you know, if you don't, if you like, what's worse, right? Losing your face or losing your life. Hey, no, do right. this. Because you can't just keep dropping hints and hopefully they figure out what the real problem is, right? You're just like, hey, no, you're allowed to speak up and this is not to upstage the person in charge. You're just trying to work as a team. Um, and then, you know, at one point, I think my mom would try to convince me to date and marry a Japanese woman because she says, oh, you know, they're very docile. They're very deferential. They're very submissive, you know. And it's like, that's entirely selfish <laughs> you know, yeah. just, to, just to be like, well, they won't put up a fight if I want to do something. So right. that's the person I want to marry. Yeah. Pretty um, um, elder concept, I would say. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that doesn't fly now. No. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, that's the main common theme I see is just the fact that, yeah, they're, they're taught to honor and in a way that's a great thing just to say, hey, look, this authority is in place, um, you know, and as long as you trust that they want what's best for you, then it's best for you to honor what they're trying to tell you. Um, at the same time, when you realize that the people in charge are also flawed human beings that also, you know, are also have opportunities for improvement and also have blind spots, then, you know, to be able to have a respectful dialogue, even if you disagree, uh, I think is really where uh, the turning point will happen is when people realize, hey, we can be open about this because the sooner it's in the open, the sooner we can actually address the problem and find the solution. That's fantastic. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah. What is your biggest fear in life? Oh, man. <laughs> Good question. I love your podcast, man. This oh, is great. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Yeah, no, it's fun. Um, biggest fear. Living with regret. I can't get rid of. I respect that. How, how would you say that fear drives or compels you to live your life? Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a continual learning thing. Like, like anything else, I can't just preach it. I have to practice this. Right. So yeah. whenever I have to go look out for coaching clients and I'm afraid of rejection and it's like, well, Jerry, you know, inaction is death. Like if you don't <laughs> find the client, your company is going to die. And it's like, are you so hung up on, on, you know, like avoiding that sting that you're willing to basically let your bank, you know, let your company go bankrupt. And it's like, no, that's ridiculous. Or even worse, people are saying people, and they mean this kindly. They say, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, you can always go back to pharmacy jobs. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that sounds even I, worse. Yeah. That's just, now I really hate myself because I just didn't really give it my full guns, you know, trying to get this thing going. Um, and so, yeah, like the sphere continually, like, it's not just enough for me to have fired people and, you know, Victor roommate. And it's like the, the, the irony of professional development, right. As David Allen says, he goes, the better you get, the better you'd better get. Cause guess what happens when you clear the, that challenge, another challenge. Oh, if you actually finish your to-do list, guess what? You're going to get restless and find more stuff to do. And it's like, Oh, okay. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fantastic answer for that. Um, you talked about during when we were referencing college um, and mm -hmm. later on that you started building positive habits in your life, which just mm -hmm. led to overall better existence. What mm -hmm. are some habits you recommend for uh, people who might be listening to just better their lives in general? Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the habits that really I had talked about doing, but didn't actually start doing until I, I you know, enrolled in the coaching class. Um, journaling and meditation like mm -hmm. people like don't knock it till you try it guys just saying right yes. just try it for three months and if you still don't like it hey you know what you don't have to prove anything to me just say hey look jerry i just get i gave it an honest chance kind of like dancing you're just like look just give it six months if you're still not happy with where you are after six months just make the conscious decision say okay if i'm not like where i am after six months okay i will quit that way it's not like well you couldn't get good at it it's not even that it's just to make that realize hey you're in the driver's seat here um, so yeah, journaling, meditation, um, reading a chapter a day of a book mm -hmm. that will help you. Um, you know, uh, I'll give a quick funny story where okay. I met a guy who he talked to me. He, he was so ashamed to admit that he procrastinated. Like he's like, procrastination is a terrible habit for me. And so one of his friends turned to me and says, Hey, you know, 
Jerry, what percentage of people do you think struggle with procrastination? And I said, 100%. Okay, 90% and the other 10% lie, right? And then, you know, I just I was just trying to like lighten the mood. And the guy, even, here's, what, here's what made it worse for me. He goes, yeah, I even bought some books on procrastination and how to deal with it. And it was just like, you haven't read them, have you? And they're like, oh, and it's like he hadn't. And it's like, isn't that sad? Like, you can't even get to the book that's supposed to solve your problem for not reading the book. And even worse is if you read the book and still didn't do anything about it. Like, what am I supposed to do with you, right? And so, yeah, just, hey, shrink the change, right? Can I read five pages a day? Sure. All right. Hey, that's all you need. Um, Yeah, so journaling, meditating, reading. Um, And if you want to really stretch yourself, have one conversation a day with someone who is not in your circle, right? Nice. Just say, hey, just, hey, you know what? I don't know a lot about your culture. Would you mind teaching me some things that you, you think I wouldn't know about or appreciate? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine like the way society would be if everybody did that? I mean, you don't have to be new friends or anything like that, but just learn something new, right? True. Have a greater appreciation for uh, another perspective and have more empathy, really. I think we can't get enough of that. That's, I think, uh, you touch on that point of having curiosity forever and always being willing to learn. I think that's actually my biggest fear is the idea of being taken away from my free will to be able to keep evolving and learning as a human. So, Mm, which is also, thank thank you for this conversation too. I feel like I'm just Mm. gaining so much from it, which is fantastic. Happy to help. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I touched that. I'm trying to think where did I want to go next? Yes. I remember now mm-hmm. you, you okay. referenced meditation. Um, is there any specific mm-hmm. styles, uh, or disciplines or geological locations in which you, uh, try and emphasize their practices of meditation the most? Yeah. Good question. Um, so I haven't gotten into a lot of the more intricate things like tantric or anything less like that. Hmm. Um, I just keep it very simple. Uh, the app I'll plug is called Smiling Mind. Uh, it's basically the free version of Headspace. Okay. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, basically I just, for me and my routine, what works best for me is simply setting an unguided 20 minute meditation uh, where I just set the timer and you know, and it just basically lets you know when time is up. And so the challenge though, I would start off with an unguided one. If you've never done this before, start with one that's a little more scripted and we'll tell you, hey, focus on, what your body is feeling or focus on your breathing, things like that. But once you get a pretty good idea of what it takes to meditate well, in terms of trying to focus on your breathing and, you know, let thoughts, whatever thoughts in your head run around and without trying to hang on to one or grasp one too tightly, um, you'd be surprised at the effect that it has uh, when you, when the timer goes off, because you realize, Oh, wow. Like it's just great to just empty your head in the mornings. And also, uh, on one hand, yeah, brain dump things in your journal as well, but also just to say, hey, what are you grateful for? Like to realize, hey, okay, let me get this out of my head so it's not in my head. But at the same mm-hmm. time, let me write down some things that are going to be helpful and keep me in a productive mindset the rest of the day. So, yeah, um, the simple answer is, yep, 20 minutes on Smiling Mind and All seeing right. where that takes you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just become yeah. observant to yourself and how that mm-hmm. interacts. Interesting, fascinating. I personally, I practice a lot of like uh, Indian-based meditation. So you referenced the one about writing things that you're happy for. I practice Mundidi, mm-hmm. which is a, a meditational scripture, an idea where you're focusing on the thought of joy for someone in your life that you care about, mm-hmm. joy for awesome. uh, the family around you, and then joy for someone you hate. And if you meditate wow. on those three things, it's, it helps just bring you, you know, a better sense of peace. But that's what I've sort of been exploring recently. It's been very fascinating. 
That's excellent. I may have to experiment with that now. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Of course. Um, I want to go into more spirituality and stuff, right? We're talking about meditation and that. What is your personal spiritual background, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, um, it's it's been an interesting transition the last couple of years, actually. So uh, the simple answer is that um, so in eighth grade, like I was, uh, you know, being in Tennessee, right? You're surrounded by churches and um, in eighth grade, there was a girl named Karen who uh, moved from Pittsburgh and uh, for some reason, like befriended me. And um, she was very intentional with her Christianity with me. Like she was just like, hey, you know, this is the way I want you to know Jesus. I want you to come to heaven with me. Just very, very open about that. And, um, you know, the irony is that as long as you have a certain level of su- success and stability in your life, you're not going to look for a higher power. And so it wasn't until high school where some of the friendships that I felt would be lifelong start to fall out. And, you know, in, in high school, your problems are so small, but you, you know, for an insecure kid, right. You're just like, Oh my gosh, my world is falling apart because we're not friends anymore. And so, um, you know, whether people call it emotionally vulnerable or not, Karen invited me to a church camp. And, you know, I, so in, in Christian terms, I accepted Christ. I basically said, okay, I believe in Christianity. And as a quick side note, um, you know, we can argue history and theology all we want, but at sure. the end of the day, the only reason people come to Christian, uh, embrace Christianity is they need for forgiveness. And they say, hey, you know what? I need forgiveness, guidance, and love, and I believe Jesus is the one who, who gives me these things. Um, and don't get me wrong, like the journey with organized Christianity has been a tough one. Um, you know, the campus ministry I was involved with in undergrad, it felt like a lot of legalism and a lot of you know, spiritual manipulation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until I got you know, to pharmacy school where I was involved with an organization that was better about, hey, no, finish your degree because this is how you leverage, you know, your faith in terms of patient care. Um, And then I was still kind of in this weird phase of, okay, what does this look like? Okay, read my Bible, pray, go to church, and then just kind of live the rest of my life. What does this mean? And it wasn't until... And this continued while I was in Houston. I basically got burnt out on a lot of volunteerism with nonprofits and things like that, which was ultimately, you know, I'm happy for what I learned being involved with those organizations. But then I realized that, you know, I couldn't keep being the hero. And um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I went to Beirut on a convention with some Arabic Christian doctors. And I heard some really, really crazy um, clinic reports for areas in Damascus or South Sudan or North Africa, other things. And it just really put things in perspective for me when I realized just how small I was. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm just one person, you know? Yeah. You know, I believe God is doing things through me that are, are meant to help restore dignity and, and serve others, especially the marginalized. Um, at the same time, you know, how do I, as, as uh, Count uh, Zinzander says, how do I preach the gospel, die and be forgotten? Um, you know, and it's, and it's a sobering thing that I need to, you know, consider how I'm living that out every day. It's just how am I dying to myself and how am I serving people? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where things are. Basically what we like to say is that, um, you know, Jesus is right and we need to align our priorities and our, and our beliefs, uh, alongside his and how that plays out is different for everybody. I can't tell people whether or not they need to be a missionary or they need to work more with refugees or work more with homeless. It's not for me to decide. Um, at the same time, I do hope it's something that they're intentional about evaluating. Even if they are Christian, I just hope that, you know, for people who are, uh, you know, Hindu or Muslim or yeah. other, right? I mean, just to ask yourself, hey, 
this is what you say you believe, that's wonderful. And then how are you living? Uh, you know, do you really believe that? Because uh, right. I'll be happy to admit, sometimes I struggle with what I call functional atheism, where we have this concept of God, but we don't live like he really exists, uh, that we really depend on him. So I'm not, I need to be, I want to be very mindful of the fact. Yeah, I'd like to be, I want to be very mindful and respectful of the fact that, hey, look, I'm not doing this to sound like super spiritual or super insightful. This is just one beggar telling other beggars, you know, what kind of bread they're eating. Right. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like to ask that question to people just so it can a live in its space, but allow others to just hear and express maybe something that they yeah. haven't heard before. Um, and then it let I like to lead into you know some more intrinsic value based questions or otherworldly yeah. questions. Um, what is sure. your concept of love? How would oh, you define man. it? Yeah, good one. Uh, we talk about it so much, and yet people are just like, "Well, what does it mean to really love?" Right. Um, Loving is, wanting and giving what's best for another person, no matter how much of a sacrifice you have to make. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's extremely vulnerable because yeah. it, you have to, there's something that's extremely humbling about willing, being willing to release yourself to this idea of internal and dire sacrifice for someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is your, what is your concept of evil and how it exists in the world around us? Oh man. Yeah. It is definitely there. Um, <laughs> evil. Evil is focusing only in how you benefit from someone, no matter how much it costs the other person. Mm. Fantastic. And the last one of these types of questions, uh, yeah. what do you believe is the meaning of life? <sighs> yeah. Oh. I think it's a movie. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a simulation. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, I think Monty Python had, had a movie uh, with that title. Um, I mean, Life, I believe, the definition is um, to figure out what makes you flourish and then to help others flourish in their own way as well. Mm. Okay, I like that. Um, for the next 10 years of your life, what do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? Do you have a bucket list? Um, sort of what's, what's, I guess, the next 10 steps for you in life? Oh man, yeah. You don't have to say all ten of them, but I guess okay. where do you yeah. see, where do you see yourself yeah. going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Uh, just as a side, side funny answer. At one point, because they ask these things in pharmacy school admissions, they're like, "What do you see yourself in ten years?" <laughs> and uh, what's hilarious is one of my friends was like sitting in my room, staring at a wall, wondering where the last ten years went. And, you know, and he said, <laughs> "He's like, I, he's like, I wanted to say that. I didn't actually say that, but um, I mean, in ten years, I." I want to see my business off the ground. Um, I want to be able to free up time to do, you know, serve in, in third world countries where, you know, and explore new places just to learn about other cultures and what's really out there and to do it with, uh, you know, a woman and to share that with a woman that I love and, and to really also continue to serve the, the people that I feel called to serve, uh, whether it's other Asian American leaders um, or, you know, overlooked minorities. Um, 
yeah, that's, that's just what I want to do. I'd be able to wake up excited knowing that, Hey, like I'm putting enough content, useful content out there and people are recognizing this value and are excited to compensate me for it. So yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Awesome. And then the last question I ask every single guest that comes on my show. And if you are someone who's listening right now, if you had to give advice to them and they were young, they're old, maybe they're having a midlife crisis, maybe they don't know what they want to do with their life yet. What is the one piece of wisdom from the experience you've had on this planet that you would want to leave with them that is like the most essential? Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. If I had to say anything or recommend some steps, I would just ask them to just do a mind dump on a blank sheet of paper and just say, hey, what's on your mind? Just write it out and say, why is this on my mind? So then you ask why, and then you say, do I like what's on my mind? Yes or no. What do I want to be on my mind? Write it down. And then if this is what I want to be in my mind, then how will I live out? Uh, what, what are the next actions I can take to act on what is what I want to be in my mind? I would say that would be a start. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. And I want to, uh, before we wrap up here, because I know we are getting to the end of our time, this has been a fantastic mm-hmm. conversation. Um, do you have any channels, any things you want to plug for people where they can check you out, how they can find you? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I uh, the one social media platform I focus on is LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then my website is called Adapting Leaders. And so I have a specific newsletter. I don't make available just by visiting my website. So I'm going to provide the link here and that is adaptingleaders.com slash join. So uh, that newsletter is specific to people who hear this and uh, that will have exclusive content and insights and other fun stuff to keep you in the loop with everything that's going on next. So, yep. Awesome. Start with there. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing. And I'll definitely have to sign up for that mailing list myself. Um, This has been a conversation with Jerry Fu. I want to thank you so much for giving me your time. Um, And I think it's been such an insightful conversation. I can't wait for people to have the opportunity to explore uh, some of the topics we discussed. So have a great day. All right. Thanks, Chad. Be in touch. All right. Thank you. And see you, folks.